Greetings, greetings, greetings. Welcome to another episode of Mafia Wife Life. It is me, Mafia Wife, in the Mafia Wife Life studio. This is going to be sort of an abbreviated episode. Um, yes, I have a lot to say, but I don't have a lot of time at the moment to say it. Um, lots happening, uh, going on in the world, lots of joy. And, you know, I can go into that on another episode. <clears throat> this episode is uh, about something else. And one thing that I am curious about is why people who claim to hate Zigi loves, I don't know why they creep in and they you know, use us as a topic of conversation in their, um, in their lives. I don't get it. And I find it very curious and they make assumptions that, you know, somehow within the hour of my posting something on my Facebook page, it's like making the fucking rounds and then put out there for consumption. I find that so crazy, you know? Um, when in fact, it's nobody's business except for my own and the person that I was talking to and talking about. I think that it was the content of what was said that was so evocative. Um, I just find that fucking odd. Um, but I am dealing with oddities. Um, if people really want to know what I'm up to, uh, I will decide what I want to share, who I want to have in my life. And if you ain't in my life right now, then that's pretty clear that I am you know, I am comfortable with that. Otherwise I would be trying like I used to, to make a change, but you don't see this bitch doing that. Um, I think that everything that is unfolding is as it should be. I think that everything that is happening in real time is ordained. It has a feeling of being preordained and it's a portal one after another, you know, it's just all these, it's like an advent calendar, you know, like, like all these little boxes are opening and you know, behind those doors is golden light, syrupy, butterscotch light. Um, I am choosing to share an excerpt here um, in this manuscript that I am diligently working on. I think it's fascinating how challenging, creatively challenging writing um, such a, such a manuscript is fiction, I'm sure is kind of, I'm sure it's difficult, but it's different. You know, it's folly. You can create, you know, you can create characters and you don't have to rely so much on memory. And sometimes certain memories can be more provocative in a positive way or a negative way. It's kind of like looking through a photo album, like, do you really want to see, you know, those pictures at that given time, or would you rather not be provoked? 
And so that has been the challenge um, in the arc of this, of this project. And I don't mind challenge. I enjoy challenge and I enjoy creative challenge, but this is, you know, it's a different kind of creative challenge. It's not tangible. Uh, it's, you know, so many of the other things I'm designing furniture for this next project, um, at the beach and, you know, I've designed a lot of things before, but it's only been, well, largely everything that I've designed has been out of necessity. It's uh, or desire to find something that I wished existed, but didn't. So in this uh, context, you know, I'm, I've done beds before for two projects and uh, this, I've always wanted to design a sofa. I've always wanted to design seating and I'm, you know, and coffee tables. And so I'm sort of having the opportunity to do that. And it's fabulous, um, you know, for interiors and exteriors. And the challenges are, you know, they're, they're intriguing. And it's been really nice this summer because our youngest daughter, who has such an eye and passion for design um she you know her she has different things on her agenda um travel wise and so she's got these pockets of of time in between her her travels and so I have hired her as my intern and it has been fabulous. It has just been fabulous because we, I, I like to teach and I like to teach in a, in an organic way. So I'm enjoying it and she's enjoying it. Um, and so that's a whole nother episode too. But what I am sharing here in this podcast is an excerpt on uh, a passage in my manuscript. Um, I have a friend that, you know, that published a memoir and then he's written a second memoir. And I'm like, you know, is that a thing? And obviously it is a thing, but I always thought that memoir, you know, you really couldn't write a memoir until your life, you'd already lived your life right? I always knew that I had a book in me, but I always felt like I had to live longer. I had to keep living until the end and then I would write it, but that's not what it is. And in the process of writing it, it, uh, you know, it does seem indulgent, but then it's kind of, it's a matter of voice, which sounds, it sounds so redundant, but truly that's what it is. So this is, this is not the beginning, but it's part of it. It's, well, it's, who knows where it'll end up. My parents met in Washington, D.C. in the late 1950s. My dad was in medical school at Georgetown, the oldest Catholic institution of higher, higher learning in the United States. My mother was there on a training assignment arranged by the nuns at her Catholic nursing program back in Pittsburgh. Another student nurse had been slated to go though had recently died following complications of an illegal abortion. Roe v. Wade was still years away at that time. 
My dad and his classmates made a point of attending the various mixers and other social events that allowed for the budding young doctors and nurses to get to know each other. On the surface, my parents appeared to have a lot in common. Despite having grown up on opposing sides of the Mason-Dixon, it was their Irish Catholic heritage they recognized in each other. Both of them had attended only Catholic schools through their respective high school graduations. Each of them came from families of five children. Most striking was their mutual desire to have 18 children, an idea that each of them held long before meeting. A friend of mine told me it was a good thing my parents met each other instead of someone else. Otherwise, the world might have had 36 more people in it. When her last child was born, my mother was nearly 45 years old. Had age or biology not been a factor, it's impossible to know how many brothers and sisters I might have ended up with. My mother maintains that she married my father because he was funny, though admits that it was his future as a doctor that tipped the scales in his favor. Before coming to Washington, she'd been dating a guy named Bob from back home, but his career in the family floral business couldn't pass muster with an MD. Following an uncomplicated courtship, my mother accepted my father's modest proposal, agreeing when he announced, without fanfare, that they might as well get married. There was no engagement ring, no getting down on one knee. My parents were practical people and simply saw no reason to delay their future as man and wife, living inside the sanctity of marriage, a union ordained by God. Their life as Dr. and Mrs. Jerome Davis Gorman officially began on the 17th of October, 1959. Just months after graduation, my parents were joined in holy matrimony in the Catholic church my mother grew up in. Her father arranged for a small reception at the local firehouse following the service. Her mother, who suffered from a variety of psychological ailments, wasn't up to the task of coordinating the details of her youngest daughter's wedding. Occasionally, her mental health would deteriorate in ways significant enough to require long-term inpatient care at Shepherd Pratt, the nation's oldest private psychiatric hospital near Baltimore, about an hour from home. Despite being medical professionals, my parents almost never used clinical terms when describing such facilities. Instead of identifying them as the psychiatric hospitals they were, it was their practice to refer to such establishments as the nuthouse. Early on, I was too young to know what a nuthouse was or where people went when they were actually there. Somehow I understood that my parents wouldn't tell me even if I asked. So as was my habit, I imagined it instead. For a long time, I thought of the nuthouse in an animated or storybook illustration kind of way. In my mind, I saw a kind of freeze frame of a Saturday morning cartoon. I was too young then to have a mental catalog of such imaginings. Had I been 10 or 12, I might have imagined the nuthouse looking like Graceland or like the house on the TV show Dallas. Early on, the picture I had in my head featured a kind of comic book farmhouse leaning a little sideways on some faraway horizon. The lines of the house with its triangle roof and countless windows were heavily drawn, thick and black, like a coloring book drawing gone too far. It was exaggerated like a fun house, but not really. 
The nut house of my imagination was large and stood alone at the top of a hill. There were no neighbors, no trees, no bushes or flowers, not even a driveway. In my freeze frame, it was always sunset, or maybe it was sunrise, I can't say. I only know that in my musings, the sky was always powerfully orange, as though somehow lit from behind. There were no subtleties of color normally seen at twilight. The house I imagined was three stories tall, and the windows, top to bottom, were always open, filled with countless rabid squirrels lobbing their fistful of acorns across the sloping front lawn. Their stockpile of nuts never seemed to run low. The only thing I knew about a nut house back then was that I didn't want to be there, and I didn't understand why anyone I loved or my parents loved had to be there too. By the time I discovered what a nut house really was, each of my parents had a sister residing in one. My aunts Pinky and Pat died alone in state psychiatric hospitals in Florida and Pennsylvania years after their commitments. Once they went away, I never saw them again. The number of times my mother and father visited their hospitalized siblings can be counted on one hand. In spite of this, we were taught to diligently, we were taught diligently to pray for them, mentioning them by name each night as we knelt collectively along the perimeter of our parents' king-sized bed. Sometimes, if my mother was nursing a baby, she didn't kneel, though the rest of us, along with our father, were expected to. Nightly prayers were mostly just another chore at the end of the day, something to get through like brushing our teeth or sweeping the kitchen floor. I never attached any thoughts or feelings to the words I repeated, praying in unison with my mother and father and brother and sisters, brothers and sisters. The only part of our prayers that felt off script that put any kind of personal punctuation into our litany was the specific mention of Pinky Pat and Mamam, whose mercy we were required to pay for, pray for. Pinky was my mom's oldest sister, Pat was my dad's youngest sister, and Mamam was my grandmother on my mother's side of the family. I knew something was wrong with them, but I didn't know what. I only knew that they were in the nut house. Asking God to have mercy on them felt like a very big deal. Later, it was my parents who would accuse me of being the next one in the family to end up in the nut house, something I believed for a very long time. If my mother and father, a doctor and nurse, told me I was headed there, then I had no reason to believe that what they were saying might not be true. So I believed them. And the idea of living in that cartoon house filled with those squirrels scared me, though I could tell no one, most of all my own parents, as it was them who was saying it, the thing that scared me most of all, having to leave my family. I didn't want to leave my family back then. I wanted them to love me as much as I loved them, so I tried as hard as I could to stay among them. It wasn't the years of self-medicating with alcohol that did my Aunt Pinky in. In the end, it was an unfortunate matter of one too many suicide attempts, her final one involving a knife. I never got those details either, which led me again to imagining them. I've always hoped that what happened with Pinky in that final effort was nowhere near as tragic as what I saw in my mind.
Mostly what I remember about Pinky is her pale face, full and round like a moon. I recognize now that what I was seeing was severe bloating and puffiness due to excess alcohol consumption, but I didn't know about any of that in my early days. I only wondered why her face looked as smooth as it did. Pinky had no wrinkles, a curiosity to me given the years she had on my mother. I wondered if maybe she used ivory soap or Jergens lotion or any of the products I saw advertised on TV. She had elegant fingers, which held the cigarettes she brought to her lips with such grace she might as well have been a movie star. At one point, Pinky's hair started to fall out and she began wearing wigs, mostly which sat a little askew on top of her smooth round head. Sometimes I tilted my own head a little when I looked in her direction, trying to make things seem more aligned, less off kilter. Um, and that's that excerpt. Um, I know with this manuscript that I am on the right path. I um, am working with an editor who um, is very experienced and very, you know, internationally renowned at what they do. And it's, uh, it's extremely helpful, you know, and I've learned a lot about how to position things. And I challenge anybody who, you know, who has an idea, you know, about any kind of expression, you know, I encourage them to do that. And, and I, and I, I find that, uh, the, the difficulty of particular challenge is, is, uh, it's wild, you know, it's life enhancing. Um, I, for those of you that seem to be preoccupied with me and my family, I encourage you folks to sort of hop off of us and get on with the mechanics of your own hopes and dreams and your own lives. You know, do I care that you're creeping on us? I, it's not something that I can invest in caring in. Um, because I have so many other things that I, that I care about, you know, and, um, I just, you know, what can I say? Um, I can't teach anybody how to live. I can only learn how to live my life, you know, but anyway, that is what I have to say here. And I hope everybody is having a fabulous summer. And I hope everybody is taking stock of the ways that, uh, you know, that life is, is beautiful. You know, if you just sort of edit and sort of, you know, um, pay attention to nurturing your own bloody gardens, baby. Because life is short. Thank you so much for your interest and your listenership and etc. TTYL.